Well, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and find chapter 2. We'll be getting, we will be in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 this evening, and we'll go through verse 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 will be our text. If you're here with us in the morning, you'll notice that we're moving in sync between Exodus and Matthew. I imagine that in the very near future that will begin to shift and it won't be so parallel between the morning and evening sermon texts. But here we are in Matthew chapter 2, the visit of the wise men. I hate to dispel any preconceived ideas and joyful recitations of Christmas song, but there's no evidence that there were three of them and nor were they kings. That's all I'll say about that. It's not really relevant to the sermon, but just so you all know, you've been duped. Let's read God's Word together. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Son. Thank You for these wise men from the East who traveled so far to fall down at His feet and worship. Would You cause our hearts to do the same? Show us Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. Well, this ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. You'll be familiar with these words, I'm sure. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. These words form the opening lines of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities in which the simultaneousness of good and bad, of want and plenty, of darkness and light are portrayed in raised relief. In one sense, his book is a commentary on the reality of life for all of us, 
not just for those living in London or Paris in 1775. And the reality for life in all of our situations is this. There are two kingdoms to which we may belong. The kingdom of darkness, in which we all once walked, and the kingdom of light, into which we have been transferred by faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So, I ask you this evening, to which kingdom do you belong? Which kingdom, or perhaps a better way of saying it is this, which king do you serve? And as an additional question, you might ask yourself, would my neighbors or my classmates or my significant other or my boss or my coworkers or my children give the same answer that I would give? In our text this evening, we see these two kingdoms in view quite plainly. There's the kingdom of darkness typified by Herod, troubled at the news of a competing kingdom. And there's the kingdom of light, whose king lies not in a palace, but waiting in a house on his mother's lap. And don't miss this, there are in this text those who move their allegiance from one kingdom and king to the other. And that's very important as we go through our time in Matthew 2 this evening. So I want us to observe, as we do, three contrasts between these two kingdoms. Three contrasts between the kings and between the subjects of the kingdom and between the authority that each king has. Let me say those again. This evening we'll see three contrasts between these two kingdoms. There's the difference between the kings. There's the difference between the subjects of those kings. And there's the difference between the authority that each king has. Obviously, on the face of it, we have two kings here. Uh, we, the, the word king is repeated over and over again in this text. The days of Herod the king. And the wise men said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And when Herod the king heard of this, he, wanted, uh, he was very troubled and so on and so forth. It's all over the place. These two kingdoms are in competition immediately at the outset of the text. And the two kings could not be more different. The one is a lunatic, paranoid, despotic king, Herod, and the other is an infant, a little baby boy who's sitting on his mother's lap, and that's Jesus. Now, Herod, if you don't know anything about him, he was a politician extraordinaire. He had risen to power 35 to 40 years before Jesus' birth. He had used his family's ties and war in the region to promote himself as a sort of loyalist to Rome, particularly loyal to Mark Antony and Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus. Herod fought for Rome on many occasions, often murdering opposing royal family members at one point that included one of his wives. After Mark Antony's death, he traveled to Rome to present himself as a loyal subject and a friend of Augustus and the empire, and he was established in his position and ruled over the region of Judea beginning in about 30 B.C., and eventually over the entire Hasmonean kingdom by 20 B.C. Herod built massive cities in honor of Rome, Caesarea Maritima being one of the greatest ones and most famous. And he even rebuilt the former temple, which had been destroyed during the Maccabean Revolt. He erected new walls around the base of the Temple Mount, doubling the acreage of the Temple Mount size. He brought in dirt from all around the region to fill it in, and then built a platform on top upon which he built a final new temple. 
And the final product was one of the most magnificent temples of the entire ancient world. Herod's final years, however, having been politically savvy and militarily successful and a ruler over a great region, accomplishing many worldly accomplishments and feats, his final years were marked by psychological breakdown, by delusions, by emotional disturbances, paranoia especially, and murder. We know that he killed at least three of his own sons because they were in line for his throne and he was afraid they were going to kill him first. And he killed at least several of his ten wives. After some Pharisees heard that he had died, they had a statue of a golden eagle that he had placed above the gate to the temple. They had it taken down, and when he found out about it, he had them burned alive. That's King Herod. And that's the kingdom of darkness. That's the kingdom of darkness. He is just like his king, isn't he? Herod was acting just like his king, a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And this kind of king still rules over that kingdom today. There's only darkness there. There's only anger there. There's only murder and strife and death and paranoia to be found that way. Following the king of darkness only leads to destruction. Only, only leads to destruction. But there's a way that leads to life, and life abundantly. Jesus is a totally different kind of king. He's not self-exalting and self-promoting like Herod was. He doesn't go to the power brokers of the political world and, and jockey for position in their cabinet. Rather, Jesus is self-humiliating. And in his estate of humiliation, he takes on the form of a servant, not a great king, not a ruler, but of a servant, of one who ties a towel around his waist to clean the dirty feet of the people who follow him around. He took on flesh. He began living on the planet that he had created and over which he rules as Lord. He slept under the stars that he had named in eternity past. He went from being the God who owned the cattle on a thousand hills to having nowhere to lie his head at night. Even foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man had nothing, nothing at all. What a different king we see in Jesus. In fact, he's just a baby in this text. Nothing remarkable. Keep in mind that based on the timing we see here, you remember Herod summoned the wise men in verse 7 and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And we'll see later next week that he sent and killed all of the male children in that region who were two years old or under. So essentially, Herod had determined that this baby was somewhere in the one to two-year-old range. And the whole time, how many people were coming to worship him? The whole time he's in Jerusalem, how many people do we read about coming to worship him, coming to pay homage, to recognize his kingship? None. A couple shepherds at the birth story, and then Simeon and Anna at the temple presentation. And that's it. What a different kind of king we see here. Jesus is a humble king. Herod was a brutal king. Jesus is a gentle king. Herod was a violent king. Jesus is a tender king who welcomes little children into his arms. Little children, if if you're here this evening, do you know that Jesus opens his arms to welcome you to himself? Jesus loves little children. 
He wants little children to put their faith in him and to know him and believe in him as Lord and Savior, and he welcomes little children into his arms. Herod kills little children that threaten his kingdom because that's what the king of darkness does. And that's the sort of thinking that the king of darkness puts into the minds of his subjects, and they believe it's okay to kill their little children if they threaten their kingdom, don't they? Jesus gives, he feeds and guards the flock from the wolves, but Herod takes from the flock because he is a wolf. Jesus gives his life for the people. Even real kings don't do that here on earth. They don't give their lives. In fact, kings expect their people to pay their taxes and do their part and sacrifice for the kingdom. But Christ is the one that pays our taxes. He pays for all of our sins. He does the whole work of our salvation for us, and he sacrifices himself for his people. What a different kind of king. I have to ask then, with all of this contrast portrayed for us in Matthew chapter 2, why would anyone choose to serve another king? Why would you choose to serve another king? Why would you pledge your allegiance to another kingdom than Christ's? Herod is gone. He's dead and buried, but kings like him still rule and reign over the hearts of men and women, don't they? Maybe it's money is your king, and you've pledged allegiance to it. You serve it, you work to feed it, and it does nothing but take from you. Or maybe it's sex is your king. You want to have it, and so you violate God's law in order to enjoy what God has designed to be enjoyed only in the covenant relationship of marriage. Maybe popularity is your king, and so you lie and pretend and dress up to be someone that you're not. So that way the people around you will think that you're someone that you're not. And they might respect you more or like you more or laugh with you more. Or maybe power is your king. And so you push other people down and you bump them out of your way. And you establish your own beachhead and your own foothold in the kingdom of your world. And you don't let anyone threaten it because power corrupts. Maybe you are your own king or queen. And all you want to do is be happy. Live your best life now. And so you reject the things that sound like death. Who wants to sacrifice? Who wants to give money away? Who wants to humble themselves and admit their wretchedness? Who wants to ask for someone else's help when I can do it by the sweat of my own brow? Who wants to pledge allegiance like that? What kind of king are you serving? Who's your king? To what kingdom have you pledged allegiance? There couldn't be a greater difference between Jesus and every other possible king, could there? Every other king will demand more and more and more and more from you. They'll starve your soul and leave you wanting. They'll drain your life away. You'll slave for them even, you, even though you know it never satisfies. Um, it's always remarkable to, be, remarkable to me, this interview I remember watching from years and years ago, and I know I've mentioned it before, but by all accounts, and, and whatever you think of the guy is not really relevant, but Tom Brady is the most successful professional athlete in our country, by all accounts. And after he had won like his fourth of seven Super Bowls that he's won, and married to a supermodel, he said, there's got to be more to life than this. 
He slaved away. He committed his whole life, his sleep schedule, his eating schedule, his recreation schedule, his family schedule, his travel schedule, his money, everything to the game of football, everything to be successful and be a champion. And at the end of it all, he said, isn't there more? It only takes from you, and it never gives. It never satisfies. But Jesus always gives more, doesn't he? He always gives more grace to his people. When our sin abounds, his grace superabounds. His mercy is more than all our sin. He sends his spirit to us that we might be filled up with all that we need to live lives of godliness and uprightness in this present evil age. He feeds our souls by his word and by the sacraments that we might be helped along the way in this journey and encouraged week by week. He doesn't take life, he adds life, eternal life to us. That's what a real king does. He became a servant for your sake, and he is all satisfying and all loving and all forgiving and all providing. Why would you ever serve another king? Well, the contrast between these kings could not be more stark. Herod is death, and Christ is life. Herod is arrogant and paranoid and murderous, and Christ is humble and gentle and lowly, and he gives everything to you. But the contrast between these two is just as stark and stunning between the contrast of the subjects of the kingdoms. The subjects of these different kingdoms and their kings is as remarkable as the difference between the kings themselves. Notice, first of all, Christ's kingdom has servants everywhere. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, where was the east? Well, essentially it was everywhere, not in Jerusalem. But we don't know exactly where they came from, as far away as a thousand or thousands of miles away. There's some evidence to suggest that it was uh, past Babylon and and, uh, some part of far Mesopotamia, maybe hundreds or a thousand miles away, uh, based on their interpretation of this star that they saw. We know that in this time period, there were people in the far east and in the far parts of the Middle East who had kind of merged astrology and astronomy together into one discipline. And so they watched the stars to determine what was going on in the world around them. And as they observed this star, they knew something serious was going on. But as you see in verse 2, they ask a very specific question. Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? In other words, they had some bit of information that went beyond, oh, that's interesting, those planets are dancing around each other, or that star just showed up in the distance. They had some revelation concerning what this star represented, whether God gave that to them directly, or they had been versed in the writings and prophecies of Daniel or other prophets, we don't know, but these were people that loved God coming to find His Messiah. Christ has servants everywhere because his sphere is not limited by geography like Herod's. He is not simply king over a few people in Bethlehem or even in Judea or even in all the Roman Empire. Rather, his subjects come from as far as the end of the earth. They traveled perhaps a thousand miles or more to worship at his feet. Jesus has servants in the most unexpected places, doesn't he? Why does Jesus have subjects 
at the farthest reaches of the earth? Well, according to David, it's because the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard, and their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. People the world over can look up at the stars and see the sky and look at their own reflection in the water and know that there's a God who made the universe and who has authority over them. And these men came from a pagan land. From a pagan land, there's no evidence that there was a pocket of Christianity or belief in God in this area. They perhaps were just watching the stars, and yet they had awareness of who Jesus was because God had revealed it to them. Jesus' kingdom has servants everywhere, and here's what they do. They come to worship their king. Jesus' servants come to worship their king. Now, what does Herod's servants do? He has servants as well. The whole of Jerusalem, it tells us in verse 3, was troubled with him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, this is a terribly sad commentary on the state of things in Jerusalem. We would expect, I think, that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the city in which God had chosen to cause his name to dwell, where his temple was built. You would think if there was a pocket of people who were eagerly anticipating Messiah to come and so they could serve him as king, it would have been in Jerusalem. That's what you would expect. If they knew that there was a glimmer of hope that they might be freed from Herod's insanity, you would think they would be waiting for it, but instead they respond just as we would expect of those whose allegiance is pledged to the king and kingdom of darkness. When Jesus was born, there were shepherds who came to worship, and then there was Simeon and Anna, but no one else in all of Jerusalem could have cared at all that the Messiah had been born. Those who serve the kingdom of darkness, you see, simply cannot see the light. They cannot. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God And nothing will awaken those that are resolved to be opposed to Jesus, no matter how close to them he comes. Nothing will awaken those who are resolved to be opposed to Jesus, no matter how close to them he comes. Now, bear in mind, Herod does not represent the worst of the kingdom of darkness. That may be a shock. He is not an extreme example of those who are opposed to Christ. Rather, Herod represents all those in the kingdom of darkness. In other words, he is typical of those who are opposed to Christ. Look at his rage. He's afraid, he's troubled, and the people are as well. And so he lies and he cheats and tries to find a way to kill the baby. And then when he gets angry because they departed another way, he kills all the children This is the progress of sin, the downward spiral of sin, and it's not reflective of Herod's uh, uh, paranoia or psychological disorders. It's emblematic of opposition to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. If you are apart from Christ this evening, this and more is in your heart. Enmity with God. The subjects of the kingdom of darkness hate the Lord. 
The Bible tells us that we are at enmity with God apart from Christ. There is no neutrality with God. You are not indifferent about God. We are enemies with God apart from Jesus Christ. Children of wrath, Paul says, full of sin and malice and anger and slander and gossip and lust and all antithesis of the kingdom of God. My friends, if you are not a Christian, make no mistake, you are not neutral about God. You are not neutral about God, and He is certainly not neutral about you. Sin must be judged because God is holy, and you are His enemy, which isn't that big of a deal because you can't do anything to Him. But the implication is that apart from Christ, He is your enemy, and that's a big deal. The God who created the universe, when we leave here tonight, look up at the sky and see the moon shining and all the stars and all the leaves on the trees and on the ground and all the branches and hear the sounds of the animals and feel your own heartbeat and your own lungs expand and contract and the blood flowing through your body and the feelings that you have and the thoughts that you have and your ability to see the world with your eyeballs and know that there is a God who made you with whom you have to do business. And if you're not with him, you are against him. There is no neutrality. There is no neutrality. Do we see how different these kingdoms are? Not only are the kings different, but their subjects are totally different. But I want us to see, and this is so important, if you're hearing this now and thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm a part of this kingdom. I don't know which kingdom I'm a part of. I I know about Jesus, and I think about him sometimes, and I don't I don't think that I hate him, but I certainly don't think that I love him. There's a way from the one kingdom into the other, and it's right here in this text. Think about it again about these wise men with me. They came from a pagan land. They had no, no reason to know God or to be interested in the Messiah at all. They had no reason to worship. They had their own gods and their own land and their own earthly kings, so why would they come to Jesus? Because they had heard the voice of the Lord and they responded in faith. That's it. They heard the voice of the Lord and they responded in faith. They traversed the known world to find Jesus. And when they found him, what did they do? It tells us that they fell at his feet and worshiped him in verse 11. Not at the feet of a grand king in a palace and a gold crib but the feet of a little baby sitting on his teenage mother's lap in a house in a backwoods town. They humbled themselves and by faith believed that this was the promised king. Just as their king had humbled himself by taking on flesh, so too do his subjects humble themselves before him in worship. And their worship was sincere and it was total. It was sincere. Look, at it tells us in verse 10 that after they left, they saw the star that rose before them. And when they saw the star, knowing that it was leading them to the Messiah, the king of the Jews, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they gave the best things they could possibly give. That's the humble response of anyone who comes to Christ in faith. Have you ever taken a long journey? Maybe a a long race, you've run a marathon before, or a long ride on a bike or something like that, or accomplished a lengthy feat that took you a long time to do, or even traveled around the world. My daughter and I traveled to Africa last year, 
and it felt like a really short trip over. We enjoyed it, and we were rested because we had just left the States, and we stopped in Brussels, Belgium on the way there and enjoyed a full day's layover and a day out on the town, and we went to Africa, and we putzed around the different parts of Africa uh, that we were in and taught and visited with people, and the way back took about nine years by my body's estimation of, of the way it felt. It felt like it took forever. The airport was hot and the, and the, the deep, deep the, what's the word for getting off a plane? Disembarking of all the folks from Rwanda took a long time, and then all of us getting on took a long time, and then our flight to Belgium was a little delayed, and we were kind of rushed there, but then the gate was closed when we arrived, and we had to stand there for a couple of hours waiting for it to open, and it just took forever. And when we got home, even though we landed in the worst of all cities across the continental United States, Newark, we almost fell down on our knees rejoicing that we were home, that we were stateside. Chris alluded to this last week in his sermon about returning from uh, the other side of the world, how he just longed to be home. These wise men longed to be at the destination the star had promised them. It said, come to the king, come see the king, come worship the king. And as soon as they did, you just, can you feel the emotional release as they see the baby sitting with his mother and they just collapse in front of him and worship? What a scene. Their worship was sincere and total. They fell down. These great men, wise men, traveled so far, humbled on the ground before a baby, and they gave him the best gifts they could bring because he was the king. How have you responded to Jesus, my friends? In humility? Have you bowed down before him, thrown yourself on the ground before him, knowing who he really is? Have you traveled far and overcome excuses and distractions and obstacles to come worship him? A thousand miles, perhaps, these men traveled. Would you travel a thousand miles on the back of an animal or on foot for anything? What about for Jesus? Okay, 500 miles. What if it was just 500 miles on foot to go worship Jesus? All the churches and all the world are gone, and there's one place where all of God's people are going to gather 500 miles? Would you do that? 500 miles for Jesus on foot? What about 100 miles? What about 100 miles? Would you travel 100 miles on foot for Jesus to go worship at his feet? Oh, and when you get there, you give him everything you have. You carry it all on your back, all of your greatest possessions, and you just give them to him because he deserves it. Would you do that? How about 10? What about 10 miles on foot? Would you walk 10 miles? To worship Jesus? Just 10? I'm amazed at how little it takes to keep us from Jesus sometimes. Not just physically, but in our inability to humble ourselves before Him and declare our total dependence on Him. How easily we're kept from giving Him what He deserves in our offerings or attending His worship faithfully. How easily were kept from him in our air-conditioned and heated cars. But don't miss this. As I said, maybe you're not part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but there is a way into it. There is an answer to that problem here in this text. Herod doesn't take it, but these wise men do. There is great grace here in this text. 
tremendous grace from God here in these verses. Remember, these wise men do come. They travel this distance. And why do they do it? Because God showed them the way. He revealed to them His will, His Son, where He was and how to find Him. He provided all they needed to find Jesus. He sent a star. He even sent the prophecy of Micah hundreds of years before. So when they arrived in Jerusalem, they'd know exactly where to go. And don't miss this. God provided them all they needed to find Jesus. And they heeded that information. They listened. All that you need to find Jesus is right here in this book. Everything you need for life, eternal life and godliness is contained in the pages of this book. Everything we need to know about God, creation, man, sin, eternity, Christ and salvation, sin and sanctification, holiness and righteous living, relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children and employers and employees and neighbors and other nations and immigrants and homosexuals and poor people and rich people and black people and white people. Everything we need to know is in this book because it tells us everything because God made everything And all you need to do is listen. To humble yourself before God. Not to be like Herod who says, but wait, I'm the king. But to be like these wise men who say, we're the wisest men in our country and we're going to lay down at the feet of this baby because God said he is his king. He's made a way. That grace is available for you to find Jesus tonight. That same grace is available for you. God has sent His Word into the world. It is proclaimed by preachers and evangelists and neighbors and family members who share the gospel. And He has given you the New Testament to show you His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no excuse for refusing Jesus other than your desire to refuse Him. There is none. There's no excuse for refusing Jesus excepting for the fact that you just don't want him. Now, on the other hand, there are people in this text that seem like they're part of the kingdom of God, but in actuality, they're very far from it. These scribes and Pharisees, look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquires of them where the Christ is to be born, and they know it. They tell him from this prophecy in Micah, Bethlehem of Judea, and they quote from Micah chapter 5. They know exactly where the Christ is to be. They know exactly all the information that they needed to know about the location of the Messiah and when he was going to be there and so forth, and yet They didn't respond at all, did they? Sometimes those who are closest to the means are the farthest from the ends, Matthew Henry says. Sometimes those who are closest to the means are the farthest from the ends. What a shame this is. Here we have these men with the most religious knowledge, all the facts. They even had the prophecies that the wise men lacked, and they communicated that information to them and yet were unmoved by it. At what point would you have expected these chief priests and scribes to say, wait a minute, you guys came here because of the star and the prophecy says Bethlehem and you guys are going there? We'll go with you. Our Messiah is here, our King, the one we've been waiting for. Let's go together. And yet proclaiming the good news, they failed to heed the very words that they said. Imagine how hard-hearted one must be to proclaim the Word of God and yet remain unmoved by it. 
There's a story, I believe it was Ligon Duncan who shared this, of a ruling elder in a Presbyterian church who had served for decades as an elder on the session. He had prayed for, taught, and discipled countless members of the church. And one Sunday they had a guest pastor come preaching, and he was preaching from Genesis chapter 1, and he opened his Bible, and he turned to Genesis chapter 1, and he read the opening lines of Genesis chapter 1, which said this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this ruling elder seated in the front row with his family where they always sat fell off the pew onto his knees at those very words. He later said that he had been converted in that moment. He had known all the facts about God for years and years, but upon hearing those words, realized that he had never believed in the God that he knew about. He had never lived for him as Lord or loved him as Savior. He knew, but now he had faith. Just hearing God's word read and responding in humility and faith saved this man who had been a pretender for all his life, close to the kingdom, had all the facts, scribes and chief priests, And just hearing who God was in that moment, God grabbed hold of his heart and changed him forever. What about you? Are you full of religion, full of knowledge and answers and Christian checklists yet far from God? And while you're thinking about that, ask yourself, would my family, my friends, my coworker, my wife, my children, my husband agree with me? Well, these kings are as different as they can be, Jesus and the king of darkness, and their subjects are as well. And lastly, and very briefly, so too is their authority. Herod is the king of earthly power. He's a mighty ruler in the land, but his power is derived. He's borrowing it from Rome. He does have real power in the sphere in which he operates, but it is a borrowed authority. He operates, in other words, on a leash, doesn't he? Herod can only do what Caesar approves him doing, and if he goes outside of that balance, he's going to be in big, big trouble. He can call for all the religious leaders, and they come running, verses 4 and 5. He gets upset, and all the people respond with him in verse 3. And in the next set of verses, we see that when Herod gets angry, people really die. He had some authority, but it was temporary. It was limited. It was borrowed. It wasn't really much power at all, I don't think. He's now confined to the pages of ancient history books. His is but a legacy and a pitiful one at that. Aside from a few mentions in Scripture and Josephus, we hardly know anything about Herod or his family. How little authority one must have to rule over a kingdom, die, and then disappear forever. But Jesus has real authority. The Bible tells us He has all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority, and it's inherent. It's innate to Him because of who He is. He's the Son of God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of His body, which is the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in Him everything, that He might be in everything preeminent. Not one thing has been made except by Him, and He holds all things together by the power of His authoritative Word. Herod rages and the kingdoms totter. Jesus speaks and the earth melts. 
He is the immortal, invisible, only wise God. His is the kingdom that knows no end, that smashes the other kingdoms like rocks into dust. Rather than having a king who died and was buried and became dust, our king died and was buried and rose again and lives forever. That's real authority. That's the power of Jesus. His kingdom is forever because he is forever. What a difference. What a difference we see on these pages between Herod and the kingdom of darkness and Christ and the kingdom of light. There really is no comparison. And when we pledge our allegiance to kings other than Christ, to money or power or fame or happiness or pleasure or whatever, we're pledging our allegiance to things with no power, no real authority other than what we give to them, and it only leads to death. But when we turn to Christ in faith like these wise men did, when we humble ourselves, traveling afar to worship Him, to give our lives to Him, we find life. These wise men came and gave Jesus gold and frankincense and myrrh. When we come to Jesus in humility, He gives to us an eternal inheritance with the saints in light. What a difference. He gives to us his own life, adoption, sonship in the Son. We find a humble king who loves us, who gives more to us than we could give to him in 10,000 eternities, and who has the authority and the power to bring us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his light and of his people. Do you know that king? What kingdom have you pledged allegiance to? And what king are you serving? There really is only one king, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. Would you draw all men to him as he is lifted up before us? In whose name we pray, amen.